Welcome to Liberties Talk, the podcast of Liberties Journal. I'm Celeste Marcus, managing editor of Liberties and the host of this podcast on which I talk with our writers and the larger Liberty Circle about whatever is on our minds. On this episode of the podcast, I am joined by Agnes Callard, the wonderful and brilliant, and we discuss Winter Light, the Ingmar Bergman film released in 1963. We use that movie as a springboard to talk about faith, faithlessness, religion, romance, cruelty, uh, and Bergman generally, who is Agnes's favorite director. This conversation was fascinating. It was so much fun to record, and I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Okay, Agnes. So this podcast is about Winter Light, which I think, I believe that you said that this was your favorite Bergman movie. Is that right? No. No, it's not my it movie. is his. It's his favorite, or at least it's. He oh, said that it was it? the closest to him. He said in the introduction to the movie that he recorded in two thousand three. He said that Winter Light is the movie that is closest to him because he feels like that is the time that he really made a brave film. Um, and other people have said that it's his favorite movie. I think just based on that. Um, Okay. That makes sense to me. I, I, it's, it's in my top 10. <laughs> All right. Well, that's, that's, you know, good enough. Good enough for me. But yeah, Scenes from Marriage is my favorite. That makes sense. So I, if somebody were to ask me what Winter Light was about, I would have said none of the things that you talk about in your, in the thing you sent me about Winter Light. So I think it's probably better for you, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do this because I was so surprised I was really surprised by that. Um, it was like none of the themes that I thought were the primary ones were the ones that you thought were the most important, or at least they weren't the ones that you felt like you had to work out. Um, so if you like had to do a really short summary of the movie, what would you say that it's about? And I don't mean like just what is the plot. Right. So I think that there's sort of roughly speaking two kinds of Bergman movies. There's the ones about God and death, and there's the ones about romance. And then, um, but like some of them are sort of both. <laughs> um, and so winter light is sort of both. And I think that um, my, but my focus on it is on the romance part. I'm just very interested in the particular romantic pathology that exists between Thomas the preacher and Marta, uh, the school teacher um, that, they, in some sense, need each other and live for one another and rely on one another and also sort of despise one another and can't connect to one another. So, okay, I did not think that Tomas loved her. And when I, when I read what you'd written about it, I was kind of like shocked that you thought that he did. So I just started asking like everybody, if anybody who had watched the movie, if they thought that he loved her. And basically everybody said no. So, but I do think that you're right that at least like in some scenes, it seems as if he does need her. But why do you think that he loves her? She's the only one in the congregation in that last scene. So I'm not sure he loves her in particular. <laughs> like she is like, he wants to be saving people's souls Right. And he wants to be standing in some sense in the place of God for others. Um, 
And she is the only person for whom he fulfills that function. Yeah. And so which I think is this, I think it's right that at the end of the, like she's often said that it's, she was the only person in the congregation. I think that Algot is also sitting in the congregation at, in that last scene. Is that right? The hunchback? Yeah. Yes, but I think that it's really interesting. So at this time, I hadn't ever paid so much attention before to the final conversation that uh, Thomas has with uh, Algot the Hunchback, where it's sort of, um, uh, he, Algot seems like he understands theology better than Thomas, <laughs> and that he has a kind of deeper um, engagement with um, Jesus and with Christianity than Thomas does. And so it's very hard to see Algot as someone whose spiritual needs Thomas is like attending to. And it's much easier to see that with Marta. Well, except that he does, Algot does go to him with a, with a question about his own doubt because he's confused about the gospels. Right. And, and, Mart and he's not able to say anything to him. And actually, like from the beginning of the movie, he's very dismissive of Algot, which is weird. I think maybe because, and this is a theme that I think is really central to the movie. I think he's disgusted by him because of his body. And I think like Tomas generally is disgusted by bodies, which is why he has this weird he has this weird Jesus thing. He doesn't like Jesus, which is one of the things that Yeah. Right? And he also he says to Marta that her body, like her body disgusts him. And right. Right. And her, like, especially when he says that when he's going, when he kind of loses it in the schoolroom, and he says, like, you force me to have to deal with your physical condition and with your, with like your illnesses and your rashes and your anxiety and also, and your periods. It's like all of the things that, you know, just remind women, people generally, but definitely the periods, like, remind us that we are embodied. Um, and I think, and then, and then after, right after that, she says, like, in in the letter to him, she says that thing about his, I, re- I forget what word she uses, like, distaste for Jesus Christ or something like that. Your indifference to Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. And then he walks out and he's looking at the cross and he says, what a ridiculous image. Remember? Oh, I had forgotten that. I had forgotten the what a ridiculous image part. Um, yeah, it's so, so weird. It, it is striking that when the hunchback comes in first to say he wants to talk to him, Thomas is very dismissive. And then right after the hunchback, um, uh, Jonas's wife, I can't remember her name, comes in, right? And Karen. she's like, oh, we need your, Karen, yes, we need your help. And he responds so differently to Karen than how he just responded to, what's the hunchback's name, Algot? Algot, Yeah. Algot, right? Um, so I, I think you're right that he is um, in some way repulsed by Algot. Um, but I think that he, and, and, and you're right that he has a kind, he wants to be, have this kind of transcendent function for people, right? Like to save souls and to be, to be in some sense, um, in, to be indifferent to the body. Yeah. Um, I think that's right. But I think it's like he, he, the relationship between him and Marta um, 
to me, there's a kind of codependence there where part of what part of what she wants is to be able to devote herself in this totally selfless way, right? So it's his very indifference and rejection and the fact that he is in some sense like getting nothing from her, uh, or sorry, um, giving her nothing that's like what attracts her to him. And, you know, he doesn't, um, he, he, he doesn't quite push her away. Like he, he, he asks her whether she's going to come along, um, and that like, sometimes the way in which people demonstrate their care is like very weird. Right. So what the way I see it is they have a very weird relationship in which the stuff he's doing would in any other context count as just rejection, but it's like, it's clear she won't take it as rejection. It's clear. It's going to fuel her attachment to him. It's clear that he can say all this stuff to her in the schoolroom and then be like, Hey, do you want to hang out with me and go to go to the church and do other stuff with me. And she's like, yeah. Right. So they're, they're, they're sort of inseparable as she, she shows up at these weird moments. Like after he talks to Jonas, then he sort of looks up and there's Marta. It's like, wait, where'd she yeah. come from? Um, so she's kind of um, ingrained in his life in this weird way. I, but I agree with you that he is also revolted by her and that the soul he, in some sense, the soul he really wanted to save was Jonas's. Yeah. And it's, there's so many things about the movie that just really baffled me. And I just watched it again for this. And again, was just like very confused by the things that were happening. Because for example, like with Jonas, he so badly wants to be able to engage intellectually with him. Like, it's like, okay, this is his big moment. He's going to save him, but then he can't do it at all. And in fact, like confesses to him and, is trying to like get him. I don't even understand what he, what he is trying to do with, with Jonas. Like when he says, I'm trying to show you that I'm a weak man, that I'm like a bad. Yeah. Right. So I have no idea what's, what's going on there. And then when he goes to Karin to tell her that he has like Jonas has killed himself. I think that that might be the hardest scene to watch in the movie because he says it so brutally. Yeah. It just is, there's no care at all. And again, and this is like a weird thing with Bergman movies that I don't quite understand. When people do say horrible things to each other, the reaction isn't what you would expect it to be. Yeah. And that's like definitely true in the scene with Marta when he's, he really is. And I think, I think the only thing that I would push back on a little about what you said is that this is the only time that he has told her that he doesn't want her. Before that, he kept lying to her. Like, she says, why didn't you tell me all of this before? And it's, like, not really clear why he didn't. What I think, what did he say? Because of my upbringing, I was supposed to think that, yeah. She says, why didn't you say all of this to me before? And he says, because of my upbringing, I was supposed to think of women as, like, these spiritual beings. And then... So, okay. Like, I think I think that he is he is trying to be godlike in the way that he thinks that God is, which he admits is this incredibly immature version of God. Um, and if the, kind of, if the kind of love that God can give us is a kind of love that we can't receive or that doesn't do anything for us, and the kind of love that we give God is the kind of love that like God could never want, I think this models, this is like very similar to the way that you track their relationship their love for each other because it's, it's very similar. It's like this constant dependence, 
but neither one of them can give the other what they need? Yeah. So I, I just to go back for a minute to the like the people say horrible things and what is Jonas doing in that what is Thomas doing in the conversation with Jonas? The way that I think of it, and 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 and, and this may even be the thing that Bergman liked about this movie, or at least one of the things he liked about it, is that like imagine you you you're, you're you're making a movie and the movie has to include a priest and the priest or pastor or whatever, and the pastor has a congregant who is like you know, going through an existential crisis, right? And the, and the pastor doesn't quite know how to reassure him, right? But has to say something. What you would ordinarily see is like sort of pleasantries and like attempts to be reassuring. And there would be like this, there would be like this skin that covered over the pastor's own doubts and fears that were like always below the surface, right? And it's like Bergman just tears off that skin and like the pastor ends up just directly expressing stuff that you wouldn't say in that context, right? This isn't the actual way a converse, the conversation would go. This is what would be happening beneath the surface of the conversation. And like, I think that that's so often what Bergman shows us is that there's just stuff that we hide and that we wouldn't directly say. And it's almost like, people wouldn't know how to respond if you actually talk that way. Right. And so there's the responses are always quite muted, you know? And so like when he's talking to Marta, like, yes, you know, he can give this justification of, well, before I was, you know, uh, too polite or whatever to tell you this, but it's almost like, well, before we weren't in a Bergman movie <laughs> in which people have to tell each other the truth all the time. <laughs> and, and so I think it's this like, nakedness or something that's in these conversations where every element of reassurance and politesse and like let's get through this conversation with smiling faces and 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 with a kind of show of affection all of that is just what is just gone that's just not part of the picture uh and that's it's shocking to see that and so that means that you think that those kinds of conversations in Bergman movies are like the real truth as opposed to the other truths that they say to each other at other points in the movie. Yeah. I mean, I think winter light is very pure in that just about every conversation, the only thing that people are communicating in the conversation are like their attempts to get at their deepest thoughts. And like, so the conversation with Karen, I agree with you. Like if that's, what's brutal about it. Right. It's like, he has one thing to communicate to her, which is that Jonas committed suicide. There is this thing where he's like, I did what, you know, I did what I can or something where, which is like this slightly lame, like attempt to excuse himself. And then I think that that was, I think that's a lie. I mean, I actually thought that might've been the only lie in the movie because he really you know, he's so fumbled. I mean, actually, that's interesting that you pick up. You said that because I I remember thinking like, oh, that feels really weird. That feels like really out of joint with the rest of the movie. Yes. For me, that is like the one false note. Does that mean that you feel one of the things that's characteristic of a Bergman movie is that these characters under understand themselves in a way that ordinary people don't understand themselves? I mean, you almost have this feeling like the thing, the stuff that they're saying is stuff they've never said before and has never occurred to them before. So the idea that they understand themselves, it's almost, it's like, um, it's not quite that. It's like you're looking at the x-ray of a conversation or something. Um, you're, you're looking at an interaction in a funny way. 
And these are supposed to be, I think, ordinary people, but it's how ordinary people would talk if they said what they actually meant. Right. And if they, if they were able to mean like what they actually feel, like, I think usually in one of the questions that you have to ask yourself, like when you're reading a book or when you're watching a movie is like, is this thing that the characters say telling us about themselves? Is that true? Because sometimes it's not true and not because they're lying, but because they really don't know. Like they think they love this person, but they don't actually love this person. Um, or they think that they're okay and they're not okay. Or they think they believe in God and they don't believe in God. Actually, Marta thinks she doesn't believe in God, but she prays in a way that he doesn't pray. And I wondered if she, I mean, can you believe in God? Can you not believe in God and pray that way? The weird thing, right, is that she prays, whereas he idealizes his wife as this uh kind of perfect romantic object, his ex-wife, sorry, his, his dead wife, right? So there's a way in which in their private moment, in his private moments, um, he sees romance as having this kind of like deep and moving source of meaning for him. And in her, in Marta's private moments, it's religion that has that deep and moving source of meaning. Oh, so I really thought when he said the thing to her about forcing him to like, recognize that she's on her period. I was like, oh my God, he was married to this other woman who is now dead and who concealed from him all of these, these human embodiments. I mean, there are people like this who are able to live entire lives together and conceal from their partner, like anything disgusting about their bodies. Like they, people can do this. They live this way. Um, but it always kind of baffles me that people can live that way. And she, from the very moment that Marta enters the movie, she, I think the first thing she does is sneeze. Like immediately she's in a body. And he also, he's coughing. And also this is a, this is like a fun fact about the movie. Um, the the actor, um, Gunnar Bjordstad, Stan, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. He did have the, he had the flu while they were filming the movie, but Bergman got his doctor to give him medicine that made him worse. Wow. So that he was really sick. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like literally playing God. Like, the metaphor is not, it's not subtle. Yeah. To make him like even sicker because he is, he's like being punished for not valuing the body, for thinking of himself as above everything else, every other human creature. And in the movie, he's terribly sick, like being, literally being punished by being physical and weak. Right. You know, there's something about the um, the role of his um, his dead wife, this and and the picture of her. Like, there's another. It's Saraband. You know, it's the, the there's another Bergman movie, Saraband, which is the kind of sequel to Scenes for Marriage a little bit, like from much later. So it's with the same people as in Scenes but like from like 2002 or something. And, and, and there's a woman in there who is like the dead wife um, who played and, 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 and they show her picture and it has a similar kind of force of like the idealization. The woman you can idealize is the dead wife who died when she was pretty young. And you can sort of project onto her all the perfect characters of femininity. And now that she's dead and she doesn't have a body, right? Like, 
you can maybe even forget if she, her materiality or something. Maybe she hid her periods or maybe you can just forget she ever had to have them because all she is now is like this photograph in a wallet, um, unaging, right? Um, doesn't nag, doesn't get exactly, rashes. right. Exactly, exactly. And, and, but it's, and it, I, I was so annoyed by this in the, in, the, in the other movie. Like, oh God, Anna again, wonderful, perfect Anna. Oh, look, you know, she would have dealt with this situation like perfectly. They all love her. They all like all can say good things about her. And it's like, it just really got on my nerves. Like I really came to hate her by the end of the movie. And she's not in the movie, right? But the, the ex, so I'm like associating that with this movie too, where there's like, it's like the only good woman is a dead woman. <laughs> you know, she can, she could be perfect. Yeah. And also she has a higher status than Jesus does because Jesus has a body and it's ugly and you see it there. Right. Yeah. Which is also like, there's that, there's that weird memento mori on the wall in the church, which I, I was just like, this is such a weird thing. Why is this there? You know, you see it in the background when he is, he like walks around the church yes. by himself. So bizarre. And it's as if it's saying like in the background, by the way, death is actually ugly. This is what a skull looks like. It's not this thing that you're imagining. Like it, it's not realistic. And it's similarly juvenile in the way that his idea of God is juvenile. This, and he's realizing that. I mean, he's not, when Jonas goes to him and is asking him for help, it's not about faith. He's not asking about God. Like, I don't think Jonas ever mentions God. I don't think Karen ever mentions God in relation to Jonas. I don't know if she ever mentions God at all. She, he's worried about a nuclear holocaust, or apocalypse. Right, right, right. Um, right. He thinks like things are all going to end. And so what's the point? Right. And it's not what, what Erickson has a problem with, with regard to nuclear Holocaust is why isn't God stopping this from happening? That's not Jonas's problem. He doesn't, I mean, he hasn't even thought about that. He's just afraid of China. Right. Right. Jonas is the one. Right. Who I mean, goes, yeah. The weird thing about the Jonas thing is that Thomas just doesn't really ask him like, "What exactly is your problem here?" It's very ill-defined, right? His wife is like, "Yeah, it's this China thing," and then and then all we hear is like Thomas going on about like how his own loss of faith, and he doesn't like he he never really finds out, right? He's so um, uninquisitive and unable to relate to other people that we don't really know what was going on in Jonas's head. Right. We have, I mean, we have no idea. All, all we can imagine is that, and it's weird, right? I mean, all we can imagine is that he's afraid, he's afraid that there's, China has nuclear weapons and they're going to blow up the entire planet because the newspaper said that China has nuclear weapons and they could do that. Um, which like is a strange thing because most human beings who read that in the newspaper don't then become suicidal, right? Like that's strange. And so you might be able, if, if you were a good pastor, you might be able to figure out maybe there was something else going on here. But Thomas, when he becomes aware that there is this huge problem that he can't explain to himself, his problem with it is that the God that he believes in doesn't square with this. It has nothing to do with Jonas's problem. It's totally different. Right. 
Right. I mean, I, you know, I guess I thought that what happened was something like, you know, he had sort of lost his faith or questioned it or whatever when he was in Lisbon. I guess he saw like a lot of suffering and he somehow, Jonas's thing about China like triggers in him this memory of his experience in Lisbon and how he lost his faith there somewhat, though his wife kind of helped him patch it up as he describes it, right? And he just, he just is like lost in this reverie about himself. Um, so he's very like, and, 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 you know, is that the same, the idea that God would allow that to happen, like as an objection to God, like, is that the same thing that Jonas is, I, I don't know. I think you're right that there's good reason to think it's not what Jonas is worried about, but, but, or anyways, there isn't much reason to think it is. But I, it's more just that we don't know because Thomas is so self-absorbed. He is. And it's strange. It, it is strange that Marta loves him. There's nothing, there is nothing appealing about the character. There's nothing he does in the entire movie that is kind or thoughtful or anything. Like there's no expression of selflessness or love for anybody other than this woman who is dead. Even for God, he's just mad that God has forsaken him. And even though, even using those words is a strange thing. God, why have you, isn't that, is, or is that a Christian thing? And I just don't know that. It, is it, is it weird that you're, go, that you're speaking in Jesus's words? Yeah, it's a little self-aggrandizing. <laughs> it is, right? I, I thought that, and then I thought maybe I just don't know. Maybe this is, maybe this is a thing. <laughs> um, and at the end, um, Al God does that. It, but in a much humbler way, right? He compares his suffering to Jesus, but only to say that it can't be that bad because he's in physical pain a lot longer than Jesus is. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really good argument. <laughs> yeah, I also, I, I was surprised that, um, that he, Erickson wasn't swayed by that at all. He doesn't even respond. He doesn't say anything. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think that, um, you know, if you like, if, if there is going, if there's a Jesus figure in this movie, it's definitely got to be like Marta, right? I mean, she has like the wounds on her hands, right? That's sort of Jesus-like. Um, and she wants to suffer, right, for Thomas, right? Um, so she... Um, so she is like, she is like the, the, the one who wants to sacrifice herself for the sins of another or something. And like, there's nothing lovable about Thomas. I think that's right. But he, you know, Jesus sacrificed himself for the world and maybe there's not that much lovable about us. Like maybe he's supposed to represent who we all are, which is like basically self-absorbed and kind of having your eye on like your own glory and your own problems or something. Right. And that's, um, you know, all Marta wants is to devote herself to that. Like she doesn't want anything back. That's true. I thought I had thought before that she was the most human, the we the least godlike in like the really cynical way that I think Bergman is using the one of the one of the ways that Bergman is using God in this movie. Um, Although maybe it's not a cynical movie about faith. If, if what you just said is right and she's supposed to be Jesus, it's not cynical. Um, but 
that is in like my reading of it is inconsistent with him being completely unlovable and her wanting so badly to just devote herself to him. When she tells him that she, that she loves him, she says, she says it almost like she, it's not really him. It's like a cause. She wants to be able to devote herself to him completely, which is such a strange way of professing love. It's not specific. Right. So that's sort of what I mean by saying that he loves her is like, he doesn't love her specifically. Right. But he has this kind of cause. He has this kind of mission of soul saving and like whoever's, and she's the only one who's around. (laughs) Right. And, and so, and it's like, in fact, her atheism doesn't repel him. It doesn't seem to bother him. Her her physicality does, but not her atheism. Right. Uh, And in a way, her atheism, or at least her professed atheism, right, is sort of makes her material for possibly saving, right? Um, uh, and, but but not in particular, not her in particular, right? And that's sort of what I mean by it's almost like each of them loves something more general, a more general description under which the other person fits. Um, uh, and neither of them can receive that love from the other. And maybe that's the only way that a human being can love God. Because how could you love God in a more specific way than that? I mean, if you, if you, take, it, if you take it that the, the point of the movie or the way that the movie explores love for God is through human relationships, um, which I think is a standard reading of the movie, although maybe you don't buy that. Do you? I'm sort of, I almost feel like it's more the other way. It's that I think Bergman's more interested in human relationships than in relationships with God. And so I think it's that he's like the thing that's pathological about human relationships is that they're sort of modeled on love of God and on the relation to God um, that we treat one another in the way that it maybe it would be appropriate to treat God. Um, and that these kind of, massive and weird sorts of like expectations and relations that we have to one don't seem directed at that actual person that's in front of you. Um, so if you think of, um, yeah, if you think of Marta as just standing in for God, um, then in some way, like Thomas's anger at her is kind of his anger at God. Right. And if you think of Thomas as standing in for God, to Marta, it's like she's expressing a kind of devotion and they're each doing this thing that just doesn't, it doesn't seem like a real human relationship. It's there's something otherworldly about it, but I think Bergman thinks there's something otherworldly about romance, something pathological. Mm. Right. And maybe it is this like weird status that we assign to romance. Like we think that it's (laughs) unimpeachable in a way that's unhealthy certainly the love that he has for his wife. And I think that that's the only person that he's the only thing he says he loves in the movie is his dead wife. And it was like, if, if we, if we trust him and you say that we should trust him, that when this, when he's speaking, he's speaking like completely honestly without any um, filter, he loved her to the degree that she hid her humanity from him, which she did perfectly. And so she shielded him from having to deal with 
or his memory has transformed her, right? <laughs> That's the other possibility that he elevated her in memory and now he remembers her as, and he could be being totally sincere and honest that that's how he now remembers her. And that is a thing we do with dead people. Totally. It's also a thing we do with living people. I mean, like completely misunderstanding what it is that they're trying to do for us and just reading the thing that we think we want, what we want them to be doing for us. He's such a powerful personality that it's difficult to imagine that any woman any any woman for him could be present enough in his mind as the version of themselves that they want him to see them as and people say like the other congregants the organist who doesn't have a name um who's like this kind of weird he's like the only like kind of seedy kind of ordinary person in the movie he says that she he only had eyes for her and marta never knew her i think she was dead before Marta got there. Because remember, he says, like, all of your, your, you try to copy her behavior and it's just, just the ugly imitation. And she says, I don't, I didn't even know her. So he did have, I mean, so there are other people who say that he did, he was completely obsessed with her. And so maybe it's true. And also, when he is in Lisbon, he said, he speaks of his time in Lisbon as if, he, all of this disgusting thing was happening. All of these disgusting things were happening around him, and him and his God existed in a universe away from all of that. They never dealt with it. And when he came back, his wife helped him maintain this image of God that didn't have to do with human life. And he loved her. He loved her for preserving this purity. And there are ways where. For, in love and also in religion, there are people who dedicate their lives or who consider themselves experts on these subjects, and they're, they've gotten so good at using those things as a way to evade the humanity that those two things could deal with. You know, there are, there are religious um, leaders or religious people who can grapple genuinely with the with the real world they're not in the movie unless you think that marta is and there are people who you know marta marta is like this right yes so i think that's right but i also think that bergman just thinks that this is it's not only a problem about religion or religiosity i think he thinks it's a problem about romance that we are religious about it that is like, so if you think about like, you know, what the, the, the final, the final bit of scenes from marriage, they're like in this bed together. And she's like, I think I've never loved anyone and I've never been loved. And he's like, no, don't be silly. You love me in your own nagging way. And I love you in my selfish egocentric way. And she's like, oh, okay, I guess that's right. right? And, and so there's this idea that there's this kind of human love, right? That this is a small human love that they can have for one another. That was just not enough. It wasn't what they wanted from one another at the start. What they wanted at the start was for the other person to be for them some kind of like transcendent experience, right? Um, and like Marta keeps not being that for Thomas. She keeps being like a human being, right? And and he wants this transcendent thing instead of a human being. But it's like we ha we are caught in that in our romantic relationships. We're religious about them in the sense that we don't want to be relating to another human being. We want to be relating and to be elevated in some way to the status of something like a god. Yeah. And Karin and Jonas are like 
they're real human beings who are in love with each other, but who are also just like dependent on each other for basic things. And he, not because of any, I mean, unless you think that in like, in allowing himself to like consider this hypothetical like doomsday scenario and to be killed by it was a betrayal of the love and an indulgence in this kind of, in, in that kind of like godly behavior in that way, like getting himself out of real life was a betrayal of the love, um, which it might be. But before that, this is just an example of like an ordinary couple that loves each other and is dependent on each other um, in a way that you don't ordinarily see in Bergman movies. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we don't know much about their relationship. Like, one thing that's striking is that Karen speaks for Jonas, right, in the first thing. Like, Jonas can't speak for himself, and Karen is the one who's explaining the thing about China. So that does suggest a kind of dependence. Um, I thought that was just because he didn't want to be there. He didn't want to be there, but like the point is that she can look out for his good in a certain way. And she also understands why he's suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that's human. I mean, that, that's not like godlike, is it? Is it? Oh no. Right. I I, I think that, so, so I, no, absolutely. Like, I think they're like a, in what I, what I, what I, what I was wondering is like, how much do we see of anything between Karin and Jonas? And for me that that's like a, a sign of like, okay, they do have a connection in that she understands what's going through his head and what he's suffering over. Right. And I agree that is human. I like, how much does Jonas feel for Karen? That is a little hard to know. Right. I mean, maybe she was able to get him to go to the pastor. There's a moment when he asks, when um, the pastor Erickson asks Jonas do you have a problem? Like he's trying to, he's trying like asking basic questions, like sort of like from the pastor handbook of things you ask a congregant if they're depressed. And he says, do you have a, do you have a problem with your wife? And he just says, no, 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 Karen is all right. She's all right. Like he, he, he looks almost pained when he asks him that question. I felt like he was being defensive of her or protective of her. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't like complain about her, um, which felt that felt loving to me. But he does abandon her. I mean, killing himself when you have, and maybe this is a very cruel and unfair thing to say because people who are suicidal are in a lot of pain, of course. Um, but he has three kids and she's pregnant. How are, and she's by herself now, which is what she says when, like, that's a, that's a lot. I, I spent so much of the movie thinking about that. Like, how is she going to feed those kids? Just sort of like a basic question that you're not supposed to ask yourself in a Bergman movie because it's too high-minded. I think you are because like her thing where, where I thought it was very striking where Thomas says like, I'm here for you to help you or whatever. She's like, yeah, whatever. I have to go tell the kids where it's like her mind. She says, do you want to read Bible verse? Oh yeah, exactly. You want to read the Bible? (laughs) She's like, uh, no, (laughs) not now. (laughs) Not yet. I have to go. And her mind is clearly on the kids. And that is where we're supposed to be thinking too. And there's that scene, right. Where Thomas looks through the window to see her, te- like, we don't actually see her telling the kids. We sort of see the moment before she tells them. So I do think we are meant to think about the question of how are those kids going to survive? Like, there's this existential question, right, that Jonas was obsessed with. Maybe we'll all die because of China. And, like, 
Karen's version, she, you know, where she's like, well, maybe I'm just not like intellectual enough. Or I can't remember her line, you know, um, she's like, but like, she's thinking like, maybe we'll all die because we'll starve to death. Right. Right. And that's a, like, we're supposed to be kind to Jonas and I can't figure out if it's just because like Bergman is not really interested in Jonas in the movie. The way that the, did, the way that the movie happened, aside, like he had the idea that he wanted to film in the church and he wanted it to be the November light, which is why it's, it's seasonal that we're having this podcast right now. Um, but he went, he and his wife went to go visit their pastor who had married them. And he happened to mention in the conversation with Bergman that he had a congregant who was suicidal and who came to him and he couldn't help him. And the man killed himself. And that's how the, that's where the plot came from. Wow. Which wife was this? Ugh, I forget her name. <laughs> how many were there? It wasn't Leva. A lot. No, yeah. Well, the, he a was lot. never married yeah. to Lavellman. Lavellman is the only mother of children of his who he was never married to. Did you watch the movie that he wrote and she directed, Faithless, I think? No, I've wanted to see that, but I have not seen it. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it when I was like preparing for this podcast. I watched the introduction to Winter Light that um, they have on the Criterion Collection. And they say, so the, the guy who's introducing it, I don't know who, I don't know who he is, um, which is probably ignorant of me, I should, but he says that one of the things, he thinks that one of the things that the movie is about is actually like Bergman grappling with the fact that he has been horrible to women, um, which is why he idealizes the dead wife and he's so horrible to Marta and, and just, just so, so cruel to her and like very basic ways that you are not supposed to be cruel to a person who's being sensitive, who is being vulnerable to you, um, who's made themselves incredibly vulnerable to you. And he says that the faithless is the movie where he, he wrote it, but then he gave it to live Omen and it's about him. It's about how selfish he is. Um, that's about a man who is a conductor, like a genius conductor, um, who just like for, for a, fun on a lark um, breaks up his friend's marriage and destroys this woman's life who is she's a mother the daughter is a character in the movie who's like perfect and angelic and watches her whole family fall apart because this genius just decides that he he would like to have this woman um and i don't i i don't i don't know anything about bergman's um romantic history or sexual history i know that he likes i know that he slept with all of them um i didn't I didn't know anything about him treating women badly. I did think in this movie that there were parts of it that I thought were incredibly cruel in a way that I couldn't, I couldn't quite tell whether or not Erickson was being held accountable for the way that he was being cruel. And I thought maybe not like as if it was being written off as just genius. I, I, I don't. So I definitely felt, I didn't know this background, but I felt like he's definitely a the Bergman character. Right. In the same way that in scenes from a marriage, um, Johan is the Bergman character. And so Bergman is, is, is presenting his own egoism and selfishness and insensitivity and um, uh, kind of willingness to throw women aside, right. In the way that he is with Marta. Um, but he is not in this movie tempering that with anything like genius or greatness, right. This, this pastor is just terrible at everything. There's nothing he can do. He's not competent. And the congregation is slipping away from him, right? They, they don't come because he's bad. Um, so he, the, the, 
it's, it's just, but I do think it is meant to show something about like, I mean, I feel like it's also a movie about gender, right? It's almost like the, there's something intensely masculine about the way that he is responding to Marta and the way that he holds himself apart, not, not what's masculine in a good way, but a certain kind of caricature. Right. And there's a, and there's a certain kind of way in which Marta is very feminine. Right. So there's this kind of almost this way in which these two bring out, Oh, like, like precipitate a certain like gender opposition in one another. Um, like she becomes all like self-sacrificial, self-sacrificial and feminine and embodied. And she just wants to care. All she wants to do is engage in care work as people say now. Right. Um, yeah, and, and she's timid she's a teacher and she's timid. Exactly. Um, and self-conscious and insecure. And, and he is like arrogant and cold and dismissive and, and interested in big metaphysical questions, right. And abstract things. Yeah. Although I think that, I think that he had been considered this sort of prodigious pastor and he'd built up the congregation and then his wife died and it ruined him because his love for her was so pure and beautiful. And so when she was gone, he lost his superpower again, like, like idealizing this woman who was really there to, as he says, like patch up the holes for him again. I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I like, I do think it's a it's a very gendered movie and in obvious ways that you almost want to resist saying that because it's it's like it feels almost too obvious but it, it is true um and yeah he's he was I thought that he was supposed to be like this brilliant man who had been broken down completely because his wife died but the thing that you realize, and I also, I don't know that this is necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes the thing that allows you to, allows one to be great or be ex, be exceptional or brilliant um, is something that's like hiding you from harder realities that you don't want to have to deal with. I don't know if that's bad necessarily. It doesn't have to be. It can be that there's like a person, people, you know, people serve different needs for different people. And that can, all romantic relationships are like that. And sometimes a person is hiding a part of life that you just can't deal with because you have to deal with something else. And that's what she was doing for him. He was a great pastor while she was alive. I don't know that I, I can't tell if we're supposed to be judging him harshly or not. I, I do. Um, although I'm not sure if I did the first time I watched the movie, I definitely did the second time. I just could not figure out why Marta loved him. Um, but I don't know if Bergman and also the fact that Bergman poisoned the actor, like, you know, these are things, these are things that people aren't supposed to do, but he does them. And he did think of himself as kind of godly and demanded sacrifices from the people around him that he, he just was going to do it. He, in order to get the thing that he wanted, he was going to do that. Is that bad? We had the movies because he did that. Right. I almost wonder whether one thing Bergman is saying is like, what happens when you lose faith in God is that you sort of become God. Like you start to see yourself as God. Right. And, and he is like, like Thomas has this, I don't know, this sort of superciliousness and um, uh, self-absorption, right. It's almost like that level of self-absorption would only make sense if you were God. <laughs> uh, and he has that line, right. Why have you forsaken me? Right. Where he's seeing presenting himself as Jesus. Right. So there's a kind of, like he has this, there's this moment with, with Jonas, the end of his conversation with Jonas, he basically says something like, 
imagine if just God didn't exist, it would all be easy. Like there would be no need to explain suffering and everything would make sense. And it's the most absurd thing, right? Because like the whole reason why we have God is because suffering doesn't make sense. It goes the other way. This is the whole fuel for religion, right? Is that people are not okay with suffering, not having any kind of justification. And that's why they reach out to God. I felt like there were things in the movie that I could not understand because I don't believe in God. Because there's, you know, there's like, there's atheism, there's agnosticism, there's faith. And then there's this other like, weird gray area, which I think is where many, many people fall, which is they would say they don't believe in God, but they're mad at him, whatever that means. Um, Marta, I think, is in that category. Like, I hate him so much, I wish he existed. Um, And I feel like Tomas is not struggling with faithlessness. It's like the version of God that he thought he believed in the articulation that he was comfortable with no longer serves. And so now it's a spider God, right? Like that's what he says. It's a, it's not, it's not that God isn't there at all. It's that God is bad or God is evil or God doesn't love us in the way that we're supposed to be loved. Oh no, I agree. I, I agree. What he's, what, what Thomas is saying is if only I could just not believe in God, then things would be fine right? That's what he's saying to Jonas. He almost has this fantasy of becoming an atheist, right? Whereas in fact, what he has is this kind of spider God problem, right? And that, that's a theme in Bergman, right? The spider God thing, it, sh- it shows up in um, Through a Glass Darkly too. Actually, it's the name of my phone. You know, my, if you ever see spider God, can't connect to spider God in a coffee shop, you'll know that I'm there because that's what my phone is called. Um, oh, we should alert the masses. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, so it's this idea of the evil God, right? But I, I guess what I'm, what I think is naive about Thomas is that he thinks that he is in this special predicament where like he's caught believing in God, but you know, not feeling God's goodness and thus believing in the spider God. And he could just be in this blissful state of atheism. Um, and like the idea that atheism is psychologically satisfying for people is like, it's sort of what his job is not to think. (laughs) Um, Like his job is supposed to be that religion provides you comforts, right. That you wouldn't have if you were an atheist. And so his thought of like, I wish I could just be an atheist. I mean, it's almost, it's the way people sometimes talk about religion, right. Who are atheists. They're like, I wish I could believe in religion and have these comforts. Um, But you would think that a pastor wouldn't have that thought. And so to me, it's this thought of like, I would be easy if I were an atheist. I wouldn't have any of these, you know, metaphysical quandaries or something. The world would just be coherent yeah. and make sense. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I sometimes feel like we owe all of Bergman to the fact that he never came down on one side or the other. All of these movies are a product of this agony because we're all watching him struggle with not that he doesn't believe in God, not that he does believe in God, but that he's really pained because he can't figure out which, which side he falls on. Like what hap- what happens, the piece that both people, both sides are talking about, the piece of believing for non-believers and the piece of non-believing for believers, that piece is, it's not generative. The agony is generative. For Bergman anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's like, um, there's nothing, what he's looking for is something that would fulfill the function that God is supposed to fulfill. And, and, and he's noticing that 
even if on some sense you decide you're not a believer, which he did decide in his life, that, that function, that call is still there. And the, if the only thing that answers to it is God, then in a sense you find yourself drawn into belief, right? So in, in that sense, struggling with belief um, and be unable to put it aside. Um, and yes, I think that's right. That like, like in, you know, uh, in movies, in the movies of his that are about God and death, it's like, there's this, um, it's like, there's this threat that the meaning of life is just going to get taken away with, along with God. Um, and so you have to be somehow pulling God back into the picture. Yeah. I think that the idea that we can't love the way that the object of our love needs to be loved and they can't love us the way that we need to be loved because like, right. We give the love that we need, which is not the love that the person we love needs. I think that's true. Even, even if this is like the reductio ad absurdum of that, I don't know how realistic their love is. Maybe it's just supposed to be a metaphor. I don't know, but I think it is true always that we always are giving a love that the object of our love doesn't want and not able, because we don't understand it, not able to give the love that they do want. Yes. And I almost feel like we choose the object of our love by choosing the person to whom the thing we have to give will never suffice. You know, like it's not an accident that we ended up in that situation, right? Like Marta chose Thomas. Because part of, part of what we actually want is not love. It's just, it's just to keep trying to give a thing that isn't want. because part of the rejection is part of the, the love, or I don't even know the adventure of giving love because it's not just the love. It's also the process of having it be given back to us. Is a thing we yeah, need. I, 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 I'm not sure. So like, I'm not sure why this, but, I, but I think it's something like there's some way in which the love is supposed to be transcendent. Right. And so it's supposed to be more than you can give. And it's supposed to be somehow infinite. And so if there was somebody where you could just satisfy them, like all they want is like an apple or something, you know, and like, here you go. And then you're done. Right. And then it's, it's not like that, that doesn't get at sort of anything divine. And, and what Marta wants out of Thomas, what he, which he has to do for her is give her life meaning, right? Is, is he has to call mm -hmm. forth mm -hmm. from her kind of an infinity of effort. And so it can never, there has nothing to be no resolution. could ever be enough. Yeah. So do you think that that's, that's like essentially true of love or do you think this is a problem with the way that we have been taught as like contemporary society or maybe contemporary Western society or man or whatever to think about love. I think this is a problem, but I don't think it's a new problem, <laughs> like even contemporary problem. Uh, I think that like, if you, you know, you go back to, um, I don't know, some of the oldest stories about love, you know, um, 
or, or love as it appears in like Sappho. In, in Gilgamesh in yes in Sappho in 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 Homer in in Plato right you get this sense of love is basically destructive and terrible and it's a way for human beings to prey on each other and destroy one another but we need it i mean <laughs> like you know in 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 some like you know texts and then in the religious tradition what you get is this idea that it can be sanctified right so in plato it can be sanctified through a kind of philosophical like friendship right platonic platonic friendship that's the basic idea behind it it's like no sex um and then christianity there's something very similar right there's the idea of the religious person is in some sense married to god right so it's like a relationship with no sex and then okay but you know that's not for everyone there's like a second best version of it where you you do have some sex but it's like under some very serious constraints like you got to be married and maybe it's got to be procreative sex and whatever right uh interestingly there's a very similar thing in plato in the phaedrus where there's like the number one kind of romance where there's no sex and then he's like yeah but that's not going to work for everyone so you can have like the number two this is just between men by the way in plato you can have the number two kind where there's like a little bit of sex but they're embarrassed about it right? that's a plato's concession right and so there's this thought that like you can it, you know we can sort of purify it we can sanctify it but like the basic thing that we're purifying and sanctifying is something fundamentally destructive yeah and that's definitely consistent that's true, with the movie. It's, it is true in the movie, I think. It's it's not it's yeah. supposed to only be destructive. Like right. Unless it's this weird fake love that Erickson has for his dead wife. Which I don't know if that counts. I mean, I don't know if it on the one hand, I feel like you can't discount unhealthy loves because then what are you left with? But yeah. um, this one seems like particularly ridiculous to consider like a healthy or a legitimate paradigm because she's dead. Right. Right. And as I say, like to me, it's so striking that the, there's other movie where you also have the idealized dead wife. Like that's clearly a trope for Bergman. Like, you know, they're like, it's very easy in some way to love the dead wife. Um, uh, right. None of her, right. like she can't no nag you. Yeah. Right. Right. Okay, Agnes, thank you so much for this conversation. It was really fun. This was wonderful. I agree. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Just here to remind you again, as ever, that if you are not a subscriber to Liberties, you can head over to our website, libertiesjournal.com. All issues are available on the website in digital form to subscribers. So if you head over and you sign up, you'll be able to read every issue of the journal online, as well as upcoming issues as soon as they're made available. So if you've not done it yet, what are you waiting for?